Thanks for tuning in to localjobnetwork.com radio. I'm your host, Jacqueline Peterson, and you're listening to Government Compliance, where we take federal contractors and subcontractors through the current trends of affirmative action planning, equal employment opportunity, and Office of Federal Contract Compliance Programs. Now, today we have expert Sandy Ziegler, a recognized authority on federal EEO enforcement with 25 years of experience divided equally between the EEOC and the OFCCP. Sandy, thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. We actually wanted to talk with you because you recently wrote an article for the OFCCP Digest about identifying who is similarly situated for equal opportunity analysis. Can you just start us off by sharing why this is important for federal contractors to get a good handle on? Oh, certainly. The enforcement by OFCCP really runs along two lines. It's either affirmative action enforcement or discrimination or for non-discrimination. And so if you're going to try to make sure that you're not discriminating against applicants or employees and you want to make sure you get a clean bill of health from OFCCP, it's important for you to know how to self-audit and to know how they're likely to audit you. Because discrimination, after all, is basically a comparative exercise. You're trying to find out whether Group A was treated better than Group B, and if the reason they were treated better violates one of the provisions of the laws enforced by OFCCP. And what are some of the variables that maybe a compliance officer would consider running through some sort of computer system or what, just to sort of see if there's any sort of imbalance? Well, at the outset of a review, they get the data in from the contractor, and it's data about all their personnel activity. This particular article I focused on hiring, so we'll kind of focus on that in our discussion. When you get the figures in on hiring, you look at all the hiring that happened during the review period. They'll run it through impact ratio analysis computer program. So what winds up happening is that they'll get an indicator. If they get an indicator that's at least two standard deviations or greater, they tend to look at that indicator to uh, identify where they should do further investigations. Two standard deviations basically is a 95% chance that the, what you're seeing is not random. So they want to make sure that uh, it's not discrimination that's causing that uh, indicator. Another indicator is the 80% rule of the selection rate of the favored, uh, the, of the disfavored group is less than 80% of the selection rate for the favored group. According to the regulations, they can infer discrimination. In practical practice, OF is really more concerned with the two standard deviations because courts have recognized that uh, as a, a threshold for the inference of discrimination. They will sometimes refer to or cite you to the 80% rule, but generally the IRA, they're running it to see if they hit two or more standard deviations. Once they hit that, then they're going to look a little bit further, and it's when they look further that begin to do the analysis about who is similarly situated to whom. Basically, are the people we're comparing to say one group was treated less favorably than the other, are they the right set of people? And that analysis is really important, and that involves looking at this concept of similar situation in a variety of contexts as you're going through the analysis. So when we talk about hiring, we're also talking about, you know, pay rates, promotions, terminations, all those different variables come into play? Well, actually, I was going to talk a little bit more about compensation and who's similarly situated when it comes to pay rates and that kind of thing okay. uh, in a future article because it's so much more complex than, <laughs> than even the hiring. Uh, with the hiring, usually what you're looking at, you're looking at the, you know, do we have people who apply at the right time? Are, did they apply on the same, you know, basically the same methods such that they should be considered together? Uh, are they people who have similar qualifications so that they should be properly compared? You know, you're looking, you're looking at the different uh, elements that go into deciding which of these applicants is going to move further along in the process. 
And then as you're analyzing the hiring process, often there are different steps in the process, and you're looking, you know, each, each group we want to make sure they're similarly situated with respect to having become eligible for that next stage of the process. So it's a concept that you keep using over and over again. I know when OF puts the definition out, it basically talks about people in the same types of job, in the same job, uh, same kind of experience, that kind of thing. But it's, it's more, uh, to me, it's a little bit more of a tool. You're looking to see how do I compare this group to see if the analysis that, that I'm doing will, will really show me whether I'm discriminating and whether the analysis that the agency is doing will actually identify discrimination and not have a false positive or you know, actually or a false negative. Okay. And I do want to dive into these groups in just a minute that you talked about with timing and qualifications and whatnot. But just to kind of take a step back here, you said in your article that the process of refinement requires basically a determination of whether the right people are in the potentially affected class as well as determining whether the right people are in the favorite group for comparison. Why is this part so important, so significant? Because that's where you find out if the indicator you had at the outset really continues to hold. A lot of times the agency will get the, he'll hit the two standard deviations or more mark, but it doesn't necessarily end the inquiry at that point. So when they run that first data through, they're running, you know, all the people that got hired in the job A versus, you know, by race and see if their selection rates are, you know, how they compare to one another. But not everybody in that equation necessarily should be there. And as they begin to say, okay, well, this is the area we're going to focus on, what they start looking at then is let's see who all these people are. Are they the right people to be comparing? And when you start taking, maybe you take a a couple of them out for one reason or another, then you rerun the numbers, and it may show that, in fact, the standard deviation that you did have is gone once you account for this dissimilarity in the the people in the pool. Okay. You've got to make sure that the right people are identified to stay in, the right people identified to stay out, and when you start taking people out, you've got to make sure you take them out properly, which is to say you want to take out you know, people on both sides of your equation. Sure. Sometimes people have a tendency to, you know, let's look at the affected class. We've got to take these people out, but you can't leave the similarly situated people in the pool of the favorite group, otherwise you've unbalanced the equation. So it's a, it's, a, it's a balancing act. You're trying to make sure that the right people are on the side of the equation that talks about who could be discriminated against and, and that the right people are in the favorite class that you're comparing. So these people should properly be compared to these others. Okay. So for our federal contractors out there who are listening right now, you know, they're obviously encouraged to do self-audits, making sure that they're on the right track throughout the year. And you had earlier talked about groups, that there's groups that are determined with timing, application qualification courts, things like that. Can you dive into each section and talk about, you know, the importance of what it is and give us maybe some examples? Certainly. Well, the, the way I kind of broke it up was, was with timing as the first thing, because usually if there's a, an indicator of potential discrimination, the agency looks you know, up to two years prior to the date of the scheduling letter. So you usually get a scheduling letter to tell the company that we're getting ready to come to an audit. Two years prior to that date is the, is the liability period for the discrimination. So you would want to make sure that during that period of time that the personnel activity under review, in this case we're talking hiring, that there's no indicators of discrimination during that period. Then when they identify that there is one, you want to make sure that they don't have people in there who shouldn't be in there. For example, a lot of the time what the agency will do is if the hiring, if the applications were made in the previous year before that two-year period, let's say three years out, 
even if some of those people were hired in year two, because you have to have the people they were competing against in the evaluation, and you don't have to keep the data for people that, you know, three years out, usually they'll take out everybody that, uh, that made the application in the year before, even if they happen to be hired in a year under review. So they'll just take that whole event out. Then at the end of the year, let's say you stopped hiring in August, but people kept applying. If there was no other opportunity for hiring toward the end of that, that uh, two-year period, so between the, the last August you're allowed to look at and that December, let's just say if they had a, you know, a January to December uh, affirmative action plan, you wouldn't count those people because they applied at a time when there were no more hiring opportunities during that particular liability period. So you have to make sure that they don't have the wrong people in because if you included those people and they really had no chance to get hired, any indicator that you spring is going to be you know, inaccurate. And likewise, if you include someone who was hired who applied in the previous year but you don't include everybody they were competing against, you're again going to get a distorted picture of, of who should have been compared. So usually that's the way that they do it. If by any chance you wind up having something that changes from that, uh, the contractor really should point that out and make sure that everybody who could have gotten the job is in the analysis because otherwise you're not going to get a, a true estimation of discrimination. So I'm just curious, when OFCCP is, when the officer is doing this, is there like a statistician that's helping with this on their end or how does that work? Usually at this stage there isn't. There, I mean, they have statisticians. Most of them are, are centrally located in Washington, but basically what this is is everybody's got the IRA calculation. Okay. You just plug numbers in, it'll, it'll shoot out in categories, you know, do we have two standard deviations, does it violate the 80% rule? So it's just a program that the whole, all of the compliance officers have. I see. Now, eventually they may get the assistance of a statistician, and they could, but this is what happens in every single case, so it's really not practical to have a statistic, you know, statistician look at it. Usually it's much later in the uh, analysis that you actually uh, wind up engaging with the statisticians if you do in a hiring case. Okay. Was there anything else you wanted to add on timing? Yeah, there was one other thing I want to add on timing. Generally when it comes to hiring, the OFCCP is looking at patterns over time. So they tend to take all the hiring, say, that went into job group A, and they'll analyze all of it. You know, they'll analyze it for the whole period of time, as opposed to trying to look at each and every opportunity where hiring happened. And my explanation for that when I was in this business of, uh, of enforcing these laws was, you know, we're looking at a pattern of time, over time. It doesn't, we're not really looking at this particular hiring event versus this other one. But from the contractor's perspective, it may be important for them to look at the hiring events. Now, sometimes OFCCP will, but generally that first goes through when they decide this is where we need to focus our attention, they don't. But as a contractor, what you may want to look at is where, at what point during that time period did the people in the disfavored group actually apply? Because there may be times when there were just none in the pool. For example, if you have to apply for a specific position in order to be considered for it, and in the article I talked about, if you had like 10 hiring events, if you are talking a male and female case, let's say we're, we're wondering if females were discriminated against, and we look at them relative to the males who were hired. Well, if the females hired, were hired or were in the pool pretty evenly across the time period, you know, you can just run your analysis all together, and that's what OF normally would do. If the contractor notices, though, that the females were only available in two of those hiring events, then there weren't any females to be hired, which gives you a different picture of discrimination when you look at the rates of hiring, if, especially if during those times when the females were present, they actually got hired. So it may be worthwhile, even though the agency initially probably won't look at that, 
it's for the contractor to look at the time periods to see how the distribution was. Now, if the distribution is fairly even across the period, they probably don't have anything to be too concerned about when it comes to that uh, element of timing. But if they were clustered, like if you went to a job fair that was specifically targeting females or something like that, and you, you got an uh, you know, unusual uh, influx of applicants for particular jobs but not maybe for the other ones, then you may want to look at what you were doing. I mean, if you're actually accelerating your outreach and it results in a pool that's a little different than uh, you might expect, that needs to be considered in the analysis of whether or not you actually discriminated. Okay. No, that, yeah, that's helpful, especially now, you know, graduations are coming up and we have seen an increase in career events around the areas. So that's obviously something that federal contractors need to consider. Yeah. And, and actually the law is set up to encourage you to do the extra right. outreach. So, you know, as long as you really are doing, because they'll look to see whether you're really making an extra effort or you just happen to have these people come along. But if you did something as a contractor to attract a pool that's, say, richer in a group than it would normally be, that that should be uh, considered when they're looking at whether or not you're actually discriminating or is this just a byproduct of you being uh, very proactive on the affirmative action side. Well, let's talk about method of application. What exactly are we referring to there? Well, we're referring to there is how you allow people to express their interest to you and, and subsequently be considered for a position. Sometimes you have people who will just take whoever walks by. They can drop off a resume. They can drop off an application. They can call. You know, they may accept almost anybody who, who suggests that they would like to get this job. Other people are very concerned about how you apply. So even if they know you're interested, they won't consider you as to have applied unless you submit an application form or you go to their website or you do some specific method of application. One of the things people have to notice, though, if they, if they set these requirements and they don't follow them, then they expand their pool of people who might go into the equation to determine if they discriminated. And this is really important because a lot of times contractors will set up a process and someone somewhere who's not maybe as tuned into the EEO implications of their actions will make an exception. They'll see somebody they really want, and they may not require them to do what they, they're supposed to do in order to be considered. If they do that, let's say they see a resume and they are so excited about this resume, they just take the person in and put them in the pool. Well, now you've expanded your pool of applicants. It's not just people that are coming through your Internet portal. It's anybody who might have come along and handed you a resume. So one of the things that's important from the contractor's compliance perspective is to make sure that the people who could make these exceptions understand why it's important that they don't. Send that person through the process, and if they don't go through the process, then they just can't be considered. Right. Stick to your process. Right. Stick to your process if you want to contain your pool. Otherwise, you don't, it's very hard to analyze it if you're not collecting your information, and who knows who put in resumes. And so it invites a lot of speculation. You may wind up with partial data that looks worse than it actually was. It's a lot easier to control if you have a procedure and pretty much stick with it. Same thing when you have people apply for a job A and you then pick them and suggest to them they might be great for job B. A lot of times, if you just have to apply for the particular position that you're filling, like I have to apply for job A in order to be considered for job A, if that's the case, then everybody applying for job B is not similarly situated to the applicants for job A because they weren't eligible to be considered. If you make an exception and take someone who actually applied for job B and put them in the pool and consider and hire them, say, for job A, now you've introduced all these other people in job B applicant pool who might have been eligible for job A as well. So you could have any job if you want. You know, you could put that down if you want to do it. But understand when you do that, 
that now you've enlarged the group of people who may be considered similarly situated and, and also go, you know, go in your equation, and that can affect whether you hit the two standard deviations. So b- basically, be consistent in your process. It would be very helpful, especially at the end of the day when you're trying to decide, you know, did we or did we not uh, commit the violation that OFCC is concerned about? If you have a narrower definition of who really goes in this pool, you know, it's much easier for you to see it and defend it rather than having all kinds of ways that they can come in because then you wind up with this big pool that may not really be a realistic assessment of who was actually available for hire. Well, let's switch gears a little bit and talk qualifications. What specifically are we referring to there? Well, usually when someone's hiring, there are certain traits, skills, knowledge, abilities that they're trying to get in this hire. And so they'll set out what their qualifications are, and that will be you know, advertised to the public along with the job more often than not. So if you have a requirement, uh, in the example I give, say, an electrician, you want a licensed electrician for whatever this position is, then that would be a job qualification. Then the question is, how did you treat that job qualification? Sometimes when they're, uh, the appliance officer is going to analyze it or if a company is going to analyze it, they may be tempted to look at all the qualifications you said had to be present for this person to be eligible for this job and then start taking out people who don't meet that list. What I always advise my compliance officers is to first start with who they hired and see what the qualifications were of the people who were, who were actually hired. Because sometimes a company will have a list of things that are qualifications, but when you look at, the, at what, uh, what on that list was satisfied by the hires, it may not, there may be things that they didn't actually uh, implement as a requirement. Say, if they say you have to have a license, but they hired somebody without a license, you're not going to know that by looking at the license requirement on the list of qualifications. But you will know that if you look down the list of hires and see that they've got someone here who didn't have an electrician's license when they got hired. Sure. So I would suggest that you start with the pool that got hired because those are the people uh, and and the people who are like them who might have gotten hired would have be people with those same qualifications. So if you look at the at the hires and see what they really did, if in fact they really did require you to have an electrician's license and all their hires had an electrician's license when they got hired for the job, then basically everybody who doesn't have that electrician's license was not similarly situated in their likelihood of hire as the people who got hired. So you can just take all the non-licensed people out. Sure. But just like with the exceptions to your method of application, you hire somebody who doesn't have this license because you think, well, they're going to get it in a couple of weeks. You've expanded your pool to anybody else in that uh, group of applicants who might be just about to get the license as opposed to actually having Yikes. it. Yikes. So now you got to go back and add them. <laughs> then you got to go back and you got to add them in on both sides. So you'd have to add in the disfavored group or the, the, the potentially disfavored group, the ones you think might be the affected class. You have to add back in those people who maybe finished certain parts of their education toward becoming an electrician but didn't get a license. And then on the uh, favored group, you got to add them back in. If it's something important, you may want to go back at your original pool and make sure that you, you know, add it back into all the race groups and run the whole IRA again because maybe it'll change whether there's discrimination against some other group that originally didn't have an indicator. So these are things that might potentially change who you're liable to if there's, a, if there's an indicator in another group, or it may absolve you of any you know, indication of discrimination. But that's where you have to, to check and make sure that the people who were hired and the other people who are who you're saying might have been hired in their place, that they really could have been hired in their place. So you, you, that's why you really want to look at it. Now, sometimes people may make exceptions to their hiring criteria, and, uh, and it's done. It's a done deal. But that doesn't always mean that the person who didn't have the criteria was just as likely as the person who did. So maybe they made an exception for somebody who came short of the license. So you add back in all the people that you need to. 
But people without a license may not be equally likely to be hired as people with a license. So what I've always had the, the officers do is let's compare everybody with a license that's in the affected class. Let's stick with males and females because it's easy. Let's look at all the females with a license and all the males with a license who are in the applicant pool and see how well they fared with respect to selection. Were they selected at the same rates, the rates you would expect in the absence of discrimination, or were they not? And so you run them. So now we're just talking license against license. Now we look at the unlicensed females versus the unlicensed males with comparable education or whatever the, the, the least qualified hire had. We look at them, we compare them, and see what the selection rates are. Sometimes if it, the, uh, they may be, it may be a situation where as among licensed ones, they were treated pretty equally because if you had a license, they were comfortable. But if they didn't have a license, maybe they were more likely to get the benefit of the doubt to a man than to a woman. So maybe the disparity is between the, the unlicensed people who were hired because I'm willing to take a chance on a man, I'm not willing to take a chance on a woman. Then you'd have a, a situation where there's discrimination as among your hires and unlicensed. So it, it affects who, was, who really were you discriminating against and who should be remedied if we have to find a remedy for the discrimination. So these, being able to, to be comfortable with this analysis really helps you in understanding what OF is doing and understanding whether or not your process has some kind of built-in headwinds that are illegal. So basically, like you said, do your checks and balances. Look at the people that you hired for that position during that time period and see those similarly situated, and that's going to help you at least get in sort of the direction that you need to be in. Absolutely, and it allows you to understand from the agency you know, what the agency is really doing. Right. Because when the, ag- the agency is doing this analysis as they go along, and you need to follow and be able to, to effectively analyze what they're doing. So when they tell you, okay, here's who we have in the pool, and here's who we have in you know, the, the, uh, the affected class pool, here's who we have in the favorite class pool, these are the people we count as hires, then you can look and see if, in fact, there are any dissimilarities in su- such that some people should not be in this equation who are there. And sure. then you can explain to the agency, you, know, they, you need to take these people out, and here's why they're not similarly situated to these other people and why they don't belong in this pool. And it can, I'm telling you, if you can get rid of your standard deviations, a lot of times the agency will just you know, get rid of the discrimination allegation altogether. Now, in the, in the, the instances where they don't, they, they may look at individual cohorts because maybe they've gotten rid of the two, two standard deviations, but there's one or two uh, disparities that they're not comfortable with yet. Like mm-hmm. there's a man that was hired who they think was less qualified than a woman who wasn't hired. Now, when you get to cohorts, one thing the agency sometimes does is it, it assumes the inference carries over, although they know it doesn't, but, you know, they're kind of in that mode. So they may treat it as if now you just got to explain these two. But actually, when it comes down to cohorts and we no longer have an inference of discrimination, you've got to really show that these people were in head-to-head competition with each other. So if they were both applying for this job, were they applying, did they have the same hiring officials? Were they there at the same time? Because just like I said before, you may have 10 hiring events. Maybe one was in hiring event number nine and the other was in hiring event number one. And, you know, since they weren't available at the same time, it's really hard to say that this one was preferred over that one because of gender. They weren't even in head-to-head competition with each other. So that's, that, that's why you have to look even more closely when it gets down to cohorts to make sure that they actually presented in a situation where they both had the same, should have had the same chance of getting the job. Okay. So I think yeah, when you get down to cohorts, don't just carry over the inference. Make sure the agency, if they're saying, okay, well, we got rid of this, we're down to maybe one standard deviation. That's not going to carry an inference with it. Who do they have left? Look at them and see, did they really present together? Did they really have the same qualifications? Were their job duties exactly the same that, you know, that, that when they, maybe one came from a position that looked the same, but it had supervisory elements that the other one didn't that made them maybe somewhat more qualified for the position? So you have to really look at, at them closely. 
to make sure that they're properly to be compared one with another. Besides timing, application, qualifications, and obviously cohorts, I mean, that sounds very significant as well. Is there anything else that contractors need to consider when they're doing these analyses? Well, one thing did occur to me was that it was similarly situated. Sometimes you may have a former employee apply. And, and there's an argument to be made that they may not be similarly situated to the others because you've got more, more information about them. You know what they're like in working with them, especially if the hiring officials are aware of the work that this person did or they're aware that they had worked before. Some companies, for example, if, they, if you're a former employee, they'll run you through the system and see if they've got any information about you and supply that to the hiring officials. So now the hiring officials really have a whole different a degree of information about that person that they wouldn't have, wouldn't have had if they hadn't been a previous employee. So one might argue in that case that they weren't necessarily similarly situated. Or if there's you know, an increased likelihood that you're going to get hired because we had you before, that may make you a little different from the other people in the pool. So anything that may may cause you to legitimately have either a leg up or to be you know less likely to be considered because you had some performance problems or something like that that we knew about that we would not have known about if you hadn't worked for us, you know, those kinds of things may, may cause you to at least have the agency not just look at their resume, but look at the resume plus whatever you were looking at, or to consider them not similarly situated and not appropriately in the equation. So you want to make sure you know who should be on both sides of this equation all the way through the analysis that the agency gives you. So, and I'm just sort of curious here. During self-audits, obviously employers are, are, you know, trying their best to consider all the different variables and put their groups together. And they might necessarily not have all the tools that maybe, let's say, an officer has just to kind of help them get to the place that they need to be. Does an officer consider the steps that the employer has taken to kind of show their groups, even though they might not necessarily use that data because they obviously have their IRA data that they can, you know, throw into different equations and whatnot? Do they consider the steps that the employer does? Finance officers should should always rerun any analysis. I mean, when they come in, they want to get the raw data. They don't want just the um, the outcome of the contractor's self-audit. They sure. want to actually get the number of hires and all of that and run it. Consider whatever evidence that the contractor is presenting. What usually happens is the agency finds something that they think is potentially problematic. Then the contractor is asked about it. And they, when the contractor comes back to answer these inquiries, being able to show these are the people that I think should be in the pool, not these other people, and these are why these other people shouldn't be in there, then the, the agency should look at that say for example the timing these people here I've identified they didn't they applied after the last hire during the review period so they should come out if the agency hadn't picked that up already then when they look at it they should take those people out because that's the way the agency is supposed to operate so being able to know that as a contractor you can very much help the agency think through who should and should not be in the equation even if later on you find out that their analysis was wrong it's too late because at that point, the agency doesn't have to defend its analysis for discrimination. All it has to do is enforce the contract, the conciliation agreement that you signed. So you want to make sure before you get to that stage in the process that all of the math is right, that the people are, are properly in the pools that are being looked at for comparison, that you're not comparing apples to oranges, but these are really apples to apples comparison. Once you get down to that, Sometimes that will get rid of any indicator at all, which will eliminate your liability, or it may significantly shrink your liability because maybe now we're looking at a much smaller group of affected class members than what they originally started off with. So it's really important, I think, even if you're, you, know, you don't have an IRA. I mean, you should be able to get an IRA. They're pretty easy to come across. And just run the impact ratio. See what the relative selection rates are. The underlying logic of this is should, would this person really have the same chance all other things being equal, 
to have gotten this job if it wasn't for discrimination. And if they wouldn't for some reason, then they they shouldn't be considered, you know, in that same pool. So another reason why it's so important to do the self-audit, that way you know your data and you can help the OFCCP see how you got to those numbers yourself. Okay. You can, and you can possibly avoid discriminating because you realize, <laughs> oh, hold up. I need to fix we something, maybe. This. <laughs> right. Yes, exactly. Let me, right. let me correct this problem before anybody else makes me correct the problem. Sure, sure. All right. Well, any final thoughts to our contractors out there? What should they be doing to help them prepare properly for classifying people that are similarly situated? Well, I think it, when you're, if you're in a defensive posture, stay with OS because they've identified something. You want to understand who OFCCP says is it should be in the applicant pool, who they say should be in that hiring pool, who they think the potential affected class is, and who they think were preferred, the favored group, because you compare the, the uh, potential affected class to the most favored group. Then have them explain so that you understand it. Don't just nod your head because, you know, they're talking. Make sure you genuinely understand how they moved through their analysis. Who did they have in? Who did they take out? Why did they take people out? And and, and at each stage of the hiring process. So they they should be able to explain that to you. They may not want to give you their spreadsheets, but they should be able to explain to you, we took these people out because of X, Y, and Z. And it's important that you know who they added in, who they subtracted, and that that those additions and subtractions make sense to you. Then you want to make sure that they did those additions and subtractions out of both the favored group and the disfavored group, as I mentioned, because often they'll take them out of one side and then they'll throw the equation off, and, and you really should take them out of both sides. If you don't follow your policy, like about applications and things like that, uh, you got to understand, and your people need to understand that may grow, you know, your potential uh, pool for comparison to a great degree. So you need to make sure you convey the importance of that to anybody that's in a position to maybe create create a deviation from your policy. And sometimes OF gets excited when they see that you said you would do this as a policy and you don't do it, and they may confuse that with actual discrimination. So make sure that even if they deviate from the policy, that you do the analysis to show whether or not it really resulted in any kind of discrimination. And if you don't agree with the agency, then take the time, show them the agency can be persuaded. If you can sit down and talk to them in terms they understand things that make sense to the average person about why this person shouldn't be in there, they, they, can, be, they can be persuaded. And I think also when the statistical indicators drop out, as I mentioned before, make sure that you don't carry over the inference that at that point you really treat it like it's a whole new case and look at the two individuals that are identified as being similarly situated and see how similar are they? Are they simulated, similarly situated in such a respect that this really is a valid uh, method of analysis of whether or not there was discrimination there? Thank you, Sandy. We appreciate your thoughts and tips about this topic. And this does it for today's show, Government Compliance. Continue listening to localjobnetwork.com radio for your latest employment-related programs. And if you have comments, suggestions, or questions, email us at ljnradio at localjobnetwork.com. I'm Jacqueline Peterson for localjobnetwork.com radio, and thank you for listening.